Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the certainty that we have in you and that you are unchanging and that your word tells us that your nature, your commands, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens and we can count on it. It doesn't change. <clears throat> in a world that is chaotic and fluid, you are constant. And we thank you for that. We pray this morning's discussion would be uh, helpful to us as we uh, lay another piece of groundwork before we begin Leviticus. I pray that um, how we understand your law would be a doorway to a deeper understanding of how we understand Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Uh, I'm sure that most of you have tried to grapple with the ruling of the Supreme Court Friday compelling all 50 states to recognize as a constitutional guarantee the right of those of the same sex to marry. Anybody ventured to read that opinion at all? No? I had a chance to gander at it a little bit. Um, and I read uh, the, the first part of it was Justice Kennedy's uh, majority opinion. And I read that with great interest because his opening point wasn't a legal point. In fact, the, the dissent said that the argument itself wasn't a legal argument. It was all opinion, and I tend to agree with that. His point was that marriage over time uh, has changed. Uh, there was a time when marriage was arranged, and now, because of some cultural things happening, we don't have arranged marriages anymore, and that was for the better, betterment of marriage. And then his next point was, that at, at one point in our culture, uh, or in human history, uh, a woman's identity was subsumed by her husband's identity. It's called coverture. Um, it, it, it changed over time when women had the right to and, and and alas, the right to drive. Uh, th that, that, it's a joke. Uh, that, that changed over time. And he's, his argument was that was for the betterment of marriage. Um, so hey, calling two men husband and wife is just the next step on the road to making marriage better. Um, old conventions give rise to new understanding, so we let the old conventions go and, uh, and good riddance. Um, we're beginning to, to, to go through a study of Leviticus, which is all legal code in the Old Testament. And a similar argument to that made by Justice Kennedy in the opinion from Friday uh, has been thrown at us many times when we talk about the sinfulness of homosexual activity as again you know we, we think anything outside of God's ordained means of sexual activity is sin that's just a hot-button issue right now so when we talk about that the, the objection gets thrown at us um, how can you wear blended fabrics 
And how can you eat shrimp po'boys? And yet tell me that homosexual activity is sinful. It's out of the same book. It's the same antiquated stuff. It's a different culture. Who are you to tell that to me? You're, you're picking and choosing what you want to enforce because it benefits your worldview or your particular political bent. That's the argument. Well, what do you respond to that? Um, how do laws that seem so out of touch with our society speak to the modern church or modern culture? What in the world do statutes dealing with leprosy, a woman's period, and animal sacrifices have to do with 21st century Christians? Do they? Do they? Why are we bothering to study Leviticus? Well, some have said it, it's pointless. Some have said that, in fact, um, we shouldn't study Leviticus. It's from an earlier dispensation or an earlier time that God dealt with people, and uh, it's not applicable to us. Uh, on the far end of that argument is that we, we're not even obligated to follow the law at all. We're all under grace, and uh, it's not applicable to us. Um, they would argue, like Justice Kennedy, that social mores change, and, and we get a better understanding of the nature of God, and it's hypocritical to pick and choose which laws you will apply. On the other extreme... Uh, some argue, some uh, folks just north of here actually, that there is a claim that, 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 we shouldn't, that we should push for much, if not all, of the Old Testament law today and make it applicable to our culture today. God hasn't changed, and His law hasn't changed, and it's still binding, so the Old Testament law should be imposed on all the world. That's the goal. And you see then there are two extremes. One extreme is antinomian, we call it, which is no law. The other extreme is very legalistic, which is all law, right? What is a proper biblical position and understanding of the Old Testament law today? Um, Calvin and the other reformers did us a great service by working through this issue early in the Reformation. Over 500 years ago, they, uh, of course, were not alone in their conclusions. They, they had a history of, of other thinkers in the church that, that had worked through this as well. But they really thoroughly explored it and wrote it down and uh, gave us a clear framework on how we deal with the Old Testament law. The, the Reformers um, understood three divisions in the law. Can you guess what they are? Have you heard this? What I know you have. There's the moral law, right? There's the moral law, there's the ceremonial law, and there's the civic or judicial law. And as we go through Leviticus, we're going to see those three types of categories of law worked out. We've seen some of it already in Exodus. When we talk about the moral law, what are we talking about specifically? Talking about? Okay, which are what? Ten Commandments. And why would we say that the, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, apply to all, man for, all mankind for all time? Why would we say that? 
They reflect the character of God. These ten words, these ten testimonies to the character of God. And that, that is an absolute, unchanging um, expression of God's character that, that applies to all of us because we're image bearers. Okay, so the, the very function kind of shows, the function of how they were written shows their importance to us, their finger of God. Um, how, how can we say that the moral law given by God to a bunch of people in the desert applies to us today? Is there any warrant in the New Testament to say that? Something in red. But to fulfill it. Do you remember um, when he got questioned by the lawyer? Because you know, lawyers tend to ask good questions. What was the greatest commandment? What was the greatest law? And the second is likened to it. Love your neighbors yourself. What was he pointing to? The Ten Commandments. And he's summarizing them, isn't he? The first four we know deal with the vertical relationship between man and God. You shall know the gods before me. Use the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath. Don't make a carved image. Those aren't the right order, but that's what they are. That's the vertical one. And then it's love your neighbors yourself talks about the horizontal one. Don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery. And he summarized them and restated them for the lawyer and for us. When, when, uh, we talked about this when we studied through the Ten Commandments. Uh, some have argued that Jesus did away with the law in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. That he, that he just said, we don't need to do that anymore. Here's a new law I give to you. Hogwash. What he's responding to in Matthew 5 is pharisaical application of the law. If anything, Jesus set the bar even higher than the Pharisees. Uh, you remember he talked about murder. Uh, You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. He said, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Think of that as you drive on the south loop. What is he saying? Yes, our actions display uh, our obedience to the law or disobedience to the law, but the even more fundamental issue is the heart, right? The moral law condemns the heart. And notice I say condemns, it doesn't justify the heart. It's our need for a Savior. The Pharisees believed that if they never murdered anyone, they had kept the Sixth Commandment. But Jesus argued that it's not just our actions that condemn us before God, but our very hearts. We're required to keep the Ten Commandments. In fact, it's that law that's written on our hearts, as Paul says in Romans uh, 2.14. says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. 
They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Traditionally, uh, the church has, had, has held to three uses of the law, the moral law, three uses. One, there's a societal element to it. It, re- it restrains evil in society. Um, understanding that the law of God is there, it acts as a restraint to the heart of man to do what we want to do. Um, and we'll see this in Leviticus. The, the laws that are civil laws are grounded in the moral code. It's a restraint to the heart of man and society. The second use of it has been what the old guys called to terrify sinners in order to drive them to Christ. Galatians talks about it this way. The law is a tutor to bring us to Christ. It shows our need for a Savior. And the third uh, use of the law is to provide a guidance to those who believe to live the Christian life. That's been the, probably one of the more contested uses of the law. Uh, Luther wasn't real keen on that one. Uh, Calvin was. But it is, a, it is a guide to us. We're obligated for the moral law, but the law also is a, uh, a, a guidance for us to, on application to to apply God's nature to the stuff that we're in. So that's the moral law. And we've talked a lot about that already in Exodus, uh, when we went through Exodus 20. The second ca- uh, category of law recognized by the Reformers is the ceremonial law. What do you think would be included in the ceremonial law? What do you think? Sacrifices. The sacrifices? We've studied some of that already. What else? Observing the Sabbath? To some extent, yeah. How you observe it, maybe. Uh, a priest, yes. So the priesthood laws, the ceremonial laws of the priest. Or some other things. What, what you eat, maybe. What's clean and what's unclean. What's clean and unclean, okay. Washings, all those things that involve ritualistic stuff with the priesthood. The tabernacle would be considered a, a ceremonial uh, law. The reformers understood, and we understand, that these ceremonial laws uh, were types and shadows prefiguring Christ. We saw that as we went through a lot of that stuff in the tabernacle, how it was a picture of who Jesus is and what Jesus was going to do. Um, but when Christ came, there was no longer any need for the type of the shadow. The real thing had come. Hebrews 10.1 uh, points to this. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The real thing has come. Christ has come, so the type and shadow is no longer needed. But... It's helpful for us to study it because it provides the backdrop of why Christ came and who he is and what he's done. For example, we don't, we don't need a succession of high priests anymore, right? We don't have that in our culture. We don't have that in the church, a succession of high priests. Why? Christ is 
Christ is our high priest. Hebrews 4.14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We don't need another high priest. He's our eternal high priest. We no longer need a sacrificial system, including a weekly mass, by the way, because Christ offered himself once and for all for the sins of the people. Um, Hebrews 10, uh, 14, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We no longer need a tabernacle or temple, for the Lord Almighty and Lamb are the temple, it says in Revelation 21, 22. And yet, we can gain a richer understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done for us by studying the scriptures God has provided in these ceremonial laws. And the New Testament authors draw from this stuff heavily as they talk about Christ. The third category, and this is where it gets fun, is the civil or judicial law. The reformers and we understand the third category of the laws the, London, uh, the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689 states it this way, if you're into reading these things. Um, they say, to them, to Israel, also he gave sundry, sundry, what a great word, he gave sundry judicial laws which expired, what does expire mean? Ended, Ended together with the state of that people, not obliging any now by virtue of that institution, their general equity only being of moral use. It's this third category that causes a lot of confusion in the church. But notice to whom the, these civil or judicial laws are given. Who, who, is it, who are they given? To whom were they given? To whom were they given? Israel. What, what was Israel about to become when these laws were given? A nation with language, border, culture, right? An economy. The state of that people, when, when uh, the, the writers of the Second London Baptist Confession use that term, they're borrowing it from the Westminster Divines, by the way, Israel, they're talking about Israel being a political nation. And a political nation needs laws to govern it, right? You need to know how to run your society. Israel would soon be its own country with a capital, language, borders, one economy. Why is that important to understand? Because we're not the nation of Israel anymore. Wouldn't that mean they're still required to do longer? What's that? Wouldn't that mean they're required now to do it? Well, that's if they're seeking to actually be the, the former ancient Israel. I mean, would we say that, though? I don't. I don't think that I don't think that that would apply to to them. Well, the people that want to be um, real law-abiding Jews, they need to. By all of them. Well, again, that that na the ancient Israel was a unique event, yeah. and it's not going to be repeated, no matter how much we try to to, to head fake it, uh, because that that country now, Israel now, is not the same country that it, that this is. This was a this was a theocracy. Yeah, I'm talking about people that don't believe in Christ. Right. Well, the difference between, more importantly, for, for our discussion today is the that's okay. Uh, the 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 difference between our needing to obey these civil laws 
and ancient Israel's obedience to these civil laws. Why is what's the distinction there? Well, I mean, it doesn't apply to us because it, it applied to the. However, is we we should probably pattern our laws very similar to that. If God ordained it and He said this is how a society should be run, then that's probably a good indication of how we should run our society. Did he say this is how a society should be run, or did he say this is how this society will be run? This society. And I and I, I hear what you're saying. I think you're right to a to a point. The guys north of here would say exactly to that point. We need to enact all of it. Like Lindale. There's there's a there's a whole theonomy movement. No, 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 not that far north. That's more of the antinomian area. No, it's more of the theonomy type movement of we need to be in, we need to have uh, Levitical law in place in our country as as part of our civil laws here. Um, the difference is that the church has no geographical border, and Israel ceased as a nation. The church, uh, well, it would be a huge mistake to say that the United States or Great Britain or Holland are the new Israel, right? I mean, if we, if we start looking at that, then, then again, we've bound the gospel to an ethnicity, a certain people. And the church is not um, linked to any ethnicity or any culture or any people group or tribe. God does not relate to people today as a nation or ethnic group but the church crosses all geographic boundaries, ethnic boundaries, economic boundaries, political and social boundaries. So do we just abandon the use of the civil law altogether? And, I, and to your point, why would we not? What's the use of it if it's been abandoned because the nation is no longer viable, regardless if we have names? Okay, we go Second Timothy three sixteen. So it's useful for teaching, instruction, correction. They're specific to the culture that they were in right. in response to some cultural things going on around them. That's true. Um, the reformers also recognized that, um, that the civil laws were, were helpful to us, and they used the language, their general equity only being of moral use. What would that mean? What's the moral use of... Seeing the reasoning behind why the world was in place and applying that same reasoning to us now and saying, okay, well, they were different, like differentiating yourself from the pagans around you. Don't do the same things as, as, as the culture just because the culture's doing it. And, and looking at the different reasons of why these laws were, were in place. And the same so looking at the principle behind the civil law and does it apply to something that we're, we're having to deal with now? Yeah. When you read the Bible, it's dangerous to read a passage and just go, okay, this was 4,000 years ago. I'm going to directly apply this to today. You have to look for the overarching biblical principle mm-hmm. and how does that apply in this culture today. So how, how, did, how is that displaying 
God in their culture and how can we display God in our culture? What are the overarching principles? Mm. Because otherwise, the fact that I have short hair would be sin. If you look at even in the New Testament culture, right? There, there were some some things about girls not having women, whatever, not having short hair. But it was because they, the ones with short hair were prostitutes at the time. So it was the perception of immodesty or inappropriateness was the overarching principle. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important that whenever you're looking at us, you're looking at what is the overarching principle, and then how can I apply it today? One of the great examples, just to recap, you, you look at the law, what's the overarching principle, and how you apply it today. It's kind of a, a you. It's dangerous if you try to go directly. To go directly from one from the law directly to application. Then you can say, okay, this is an evil society. Let's go kill all the women, babies, and everybody because God did that in the Old Testament. Well, God told them specifically to do that. He's never told me to specifically do that. Yeah. So sure here's an example that that i that uh, I, I think is a was a was a helpful one to me deuteronomy 22 8 uh, tells uh, the hebrew when you build a new house you shall make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it what in the world i'm in the 21st century i'm building a house why would I need, what's, first of all, what is a parapet? Some kind of bird, I'm thinking. I don't know what that is. A pair of pits. A pair of pits. Like avocado pits or something. I don't know. What, 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 what is a parapet? Why would that be necessary for me to even read and understand? And, wh- and how do I deal with it? What, what, yes? It's like kind of like a little wall on top of it. Like you have a roof and then there's like a little... I think you're right. Little wall so that if somebody right. fell, they would be caught by right. Yeah, like in, in capital. So uh, when I was, uh, when, when Tammy and I lived in Houston, um, I had a friend of mine from high school who was like, he hit it big time. He was the head maintenance guy for the tallest building in Houston. The, I think it was the Bank of Texas Bank or whatever. It was the fourth tallest in the U.S. at the time, and the Twin Towers were still standing. Yeah, so it was a tall building. And so 75, 75 stories. He takes us to the top one night after our 10-year high school reunion. We go to the top of this building. He takes us to the roof, right? I don't like heights. I am very fearful of heights. I, I, I can't get on my own roof. Um, but he takes us to this roof, and, and it's at night, and it's a little windy. And I don't know if you've ever been at the top of a really tall building, but there's kind of a, kind of a feel in the wind, right? And so, Tammy, we've been married, what, two years? Not long. Too long at that point for her. Uh, because I go over to the side of the building. There's no rail. There's no parapet. Uh, I go to the side of I go to the side of the of the building and I just stick, you know, just the the, the toes. And just look over like this, right? Like you would have a long time to go stupid all the way down. Now the reason that one would need a parapet in ancient Israel is similar to the reason that one would need a parapet on top of the fourth tallest building of the United States. People are stupid and they fall off. <laughs> but an additional reason is that the roofs, the flat roofs, were oftentimes used as sleeping quarters in that culture. 
That was the cool area. I don't know why, but it was. And so it would be negligent and inviting danger to someone who's using your roof or your child or whoever if you didn't have a, a parapet, a wall, some kind of retaining thing, they'd fall off. I don't have a flat roof on my house. But what's the principle of that, of that law? Sanctity of life and to take care of those in your children. From what principle, or from what law is that principle derived? What is it? Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor yourself. It's in, the, it's in that second <laughs> section of the law, specifically the sixth commandment. Don't murder. Life is precious. Life reflects the image of God. He is the author of life. Protect it at all costs. Protect it. And even though we don't have sleeping areas on our roofs, that's kind of freaky to me, and parapets aren't necessary for us, the principle is. The principle of when I construct my house, I need to make sure that the that the, the load walls are really load walls and don't collapse on people whenever we're having, you know, those raucous parties that we have at my house. And that's true even though that law in Deuteronomy 22 is no longer binding on me. But the principle is. And that instructs me on how to look for ways to apply the principle. Uh, one of the uses of the civil law is to teach us wisdom and application of the moral law in our own specific cultural settings. And we're going to see some things that just look nutty to us. Just batty. Just what in the world were they thinking? Um, but I want to put this to you early on. It is incredibly arrogant and presumptuous of us to assume that because something is unfamiliar or weird to us, that it shows a culture and a people who are part of a backwater society that have nothing to offer us. Uh, a, great, uh, a, a great theologian once said, access to information does not equal knowledge or wisdom. That was Philip of Dancy three Sundays ago. Just because you can Google it doesn't make you smarter than the people in ancient Israel. All right. I hope that this grid, this understanding of the three types and categories of law is helpful to you as we go through Leviticus. Because a lot of people struggle through this book with this. What do I apply? What I don't apply? And we'll go through. There's a, it's actually got a, a, a breakdown of different types of uh, codes within the book itself, holiness code, other things like that. And we'll see ceremonial, we'll see civil, we'll see moral principles throughout the whole thing. And it's helpful to think through what is this, how does it apply, what, what's my takeaway from this, and ultimately, how does it point to Jesus? There's a tendency in going through the law, uh, one, to run from it just because legal code, you know. Um, the other is to, to feel the weight of it. The, to feel the heaviness. Even if you understand it, 
and, 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 and get it that this is civil, it may not apply, but the principle's there, boy, I've blown this principle. There's a weight to it. And so I, I want us to feel the weight, but I want us to also go from feeling the weight of, I have hated in my own heart, therefore I have violated the sixth commandment. I've lusted in my own heart, therefore I've violated the seventh commandment. I've coveted things, violated the tenth commandment, and by extension the first commandment, if you read Paul. The weight of it is there, and you can't obey it perfectly. And you see this, and you feel it heavily in Leviticus. But in it, through it, it points you to one who did bear it and one who did live it perfectly. And he did it for his people, for those who trust in him. Um, one, of the, um, one, of the, one of the things that uh, we talked about at, at VBS, they, they did crafts at VBS, you know, those little goofy crafts. And, and they did binoculars. And I asked them, um, when you did your binoculars or when you did your little crosses, uh, did everybody's look the same? And they said, no! You know, because I don't to do everything with the yell. And, and I said, okay, I, I saw some yesterday that were solid blue. Others had, you know, little pink and purple and whatever, and then some had little stars and all these things. Why were they different? Well, it's because each of them reflected the person that made them. This person chose the color they wanted. This person chose the design they wanted. This person chose the, the type of material that they wanted to do and to work with. The piece reflected the artist. What the law does is shows us that as the great artistry of God that we are, what the piece should look like to reflect him. And so there's the weight of that that we see how far we've fallen and it drives us, Galatians, it drives us as a tutor that we need a savior. We need someone who lived the life we should have lived and died and paid the penalty, died and paid the, de uh, the, died the death that we should have died. Um, the other thing I hope that, that this shows you uh, with this categories of the law, just how silly the accusation is that because you eat a shrimp po' boy, you can't proclaim that certain sexual ethical violations are wrong and sinful. Because you wear a blended fabric, you can't say that homosexual activity is sin. What a silly argument, given these constructs. Given a proper understanding of what the law in the Old Testament is, I hope that you see that that's just an ignorant statement. And it's one I'm afraid too many Christians fall prey to because they don't understand how to read the Old Testament law. Uh, psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the Bible. And it was written on the beauty of God's law. I hope that it, as we dive into Leviticus, as we study this beginning next week, I hope that, that you see the reason for that psalm. From the heart, you see the beauty of God's law. I, 
it's a fabulous book. It's an amazing book. And I'm looking forward for us uh, to us going through it. Yeah? You know, First uh, Peter comes to mind when it says that we need to give an answer to the hope that's in us that anyone who asks. Because mm-hmm. the answering of this question with the Supreme Court and the, the uh, divergent America that we see is this is not the gospel. Our answer is not necessarily the gospel to this question, but it reflects the gospel. And we need to we need to study this and we need to have an answer to give to those who ask us. Right. We need to be uh, this is the gospel to them. Because they don't they don't see the the varying parts of the law. They don't see they think that we're just hypocritical. Yeah. But we need to have an answer to them. Right, and, the, and, the, and I think the, the thing that we need to remember, too, is the second part of the law, love your neighbor as yourself. And part of loving, it's not just a schmoopy feeling. It's telling the truth. And what I, what I hope that we don't get into as a church, and I mean that universally in America, um, is one of two errors. One, where we thump our chest and call for, you know, secession and things like that. We're not entitled to live in a country that agrees with us on every moral issue. That's not, that's not an, an, an inalienable right by God. In fact, we're called to live in a culture that is very anti-Christ. Think of first century Rome which was much worse than 21st century America. The seeds are there, but it ain't there yet. And so we're called to live faithfully in a culture that is anti-Christ. And we need to do that with with gentleness and respect and and do it in a way that honors Christ and just doesn't make us feel better because we get to thump our chest. Well, I, I don't know that that worked out too well for them either. Um, the other is that my my bigger fear is um, is is people rolling over. It's now the law of the land. What are we going to do? We can't speak to this anymore. We're Americans, and uh, it's just going to be too hard. So let's just say maybe we were wrong about this and move on. That's my biggest fear on this whole deal. Um, but anyway, I, I pray that we're faithful and that we're faithful um, in love and in truth. That's what, I'm, that's what my prayer is on this whole deal. So, any other comments? Sure. Yeah. How do I work that out instead of, well, I should always do this, I should always do that. It's going back to the foundational principles in dealing with people and how we choose our behaviors. And sure, sure. You see then how Christianity is not a, um, a religion that tells you what to do in every situation. Exactly. It, it, God calls us to use 
wisdom and discernment based upon the principles of who he is, of his nature. And we're called to be informed by the word, uh, to, to be diligent in prayer for wisdom. The Holy Spirit works through us that way. But a lot of times, the, the decisions that we think are so important, what school to go to, who to marry, all those kind of things, those are not, those are not um, you know, I'm going to sit under a tree and wait for the wind to whisper the answer to me on a, summer, on a cool summer day, which doesn't happen in East Texas. Um, and it will never happen anyway unless it's based upon the taco that you ate last night. Um, you may hear something, but I wouldn't trust it. Um, we're, we're to use wisdom and discernment based on the principles that he gives us, not, not, uh, not what does my heart tell me to do, but just be, be in prayer and think through we're, it's a thinking religion. It's a thinking <coughs> worldview. Um, so. Can you read that quote again about the general equity of the law? Or I could find it. Well, it made me think about... Um, you don't have to read it, that um, But that people like to throw around the word legalism, but it, like we don't really have an idea of what that is because as Protestants, like we've never been legalistic. Like we have... Um, rules and things that, like guidelines that we try to follow, um, but just just having rules and, and guidelines for obedience is not legalism because we're not counting our salvation upon it. Like our salvation is in Christ. I mean, it should be. Of course, there's bad Protestant theology, but um, in comparison to like Catholicism, where you have to do these things to, to um, work, like to, to earn your sanctification, mm-hmm. um, there's a there's a, a difference between just being obedient and like actually believing that your salvation depends on you carrying out these actions. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that I would say that no Protestant is a legalist. Well, a proper one that actually believes that faith is alone in Christ. Or yeah, well, I guess maybe we could say true Protestant. Yeah. That, that it's not inherent in the understanding of, of the Reformation that that, that that would be the case. Right. Yeah. I think a lot of Protestants who've lost their ever-loving minds but on some culture. And they are wrong. Yeah. And, and so I, I think I would agree with you with the distinction of true Protestant. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's like the ideal Christian. You know, it's like we can talk about this person, the ideal Christian, but which one of us is that guy? Yeah. Um, I read something one time, um, I can't remember who it was, who it was from, but they, they talked about... Um, praying and reading scripture and you're not always going to want to do those things mm-hmm. and just because Satan's telling you um, you don't have to do these things uh, you can't just be like oh but I don't feel like it so I don't want to be legalistic about it so I'm not going to do it but you do it out of obedience contrary to what you uh, yeah. what your heart's telling you to do yeah. and that's not legalism that's just obedience right and and there are lots of commands in the New Testament you know we, we're commanded on how to go ahead well, just say it's a, it's a fine line, right? I mean, because we might not be legalist in the strict sense of we're counting out salvation on it, but we're, we flirt with it a yeah. lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, it's easy to call it obedience day and then elevate it to this is what constitutes my being a good Christian today. Right? Mm-hmm. And when in fact it's, again, it's gospel, it's it's Christ's work and not my own. Right. And so it's it's hard. It's it's not a easy to, to make the blanket statement, well, obedience always or, you know, on the other side of it, just complete liberty. 
It's a hard question. There's a ditch on both sides. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and we're, it's, we're it's called. A path in between. We're called to be those of moderation. I remember another great uh, statement by Philip of Dancy recently on that on that whole issue. His stuff through Second Timothy so far has been really. I've been really. If I had to say like that. we we fall into one category or the other, I would say that we fall into antinomianism, where uh, we think, oh, you don't ever have to go to church. You don't have to read your Bible to be a Christian because the Holy Spirit just speaks to you. But when you say we, do you mean the culture at large? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, but there's an obedience that we need to to be active in our faith. Sure. That's how we show that we love God is yeah. by how we. By obeying his commandments. Yeah, that's in red, isn't it? Driscoll said one, Mark Driscoll said one time, it's like, we do have that tendency to be antinomianism, and the fact that we proclaim that is also our legalism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because John MacArthur... And then I'm worried about the source, but go ahead. John MacArthur said he showed up at some preach one time, and it was kind of like a laid-back church, mm. and they kind of got onto him for wearing a suit. He's yeah. like, wait, we're not legalists here, so why does it matter if I wear a suit? <laughs> We'll reverse uh, reverse deal there. Good. Any any other? Uh, it, it's it's just ten oh five. I mean, we can do this for another forty five minutes. We got easy, <laughs> easy. Let's pray and uh, and then we'll be done. Father, thank you for your word and thank you that all scripture is God breathed and profitable for us. Would you give us the heart to understand? the Old Testament law is being profitable for us in the 21st century. God, convict us of cultural arrogance that's so easy to get caught up in. Help us to um, humbly come to this book, Leviticus, to learn of you, to learn of Christ, to see Him as our great King, to see Him as our great lawgiver and to see Him as our great law fulfiller and that we can trust Him and live lives unto Him out of love and obedience because He first loved us. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.